Hello, and welcome to the podcast for Christian men who want to hear well done from Jesus because they have run well the race marked out for them. Historians tell us ideas have consequences. There's one idea that has invaded the human heart that I believe is responsible for more human destruction than any other idea. The falsehood that God's goodness can't be trusted. When this wrong idea captured Eve's heart, she rebelled, Adam rebelled with her, and humans have been rebelling against God and his law ever since. Satan's chief strategy to inspire rebellion in Eve's heart was to make her doubt God's goodness. Our calling as men is to surround our loved ones with the belt of truth, which is the title of this podcast series. This episode helps our kids build confidence in the goodness of of God, and in their ability to answer those who assert that suffering proves there can't be a good God. Thanks for joining us today for season number one, episode number 49 of Mission Focus Men. My name is Gary Yeagle. The significance of trusting God's goodness is underscored in Hebrews 11.6, which tells us that it is a prerequisite to drawing near to God. We read, whoever draws near to God must believe that he rewards those who seek him. All of us want our loved ones to draw near to God, and all of us want non-believers that we share our faith with to draw near to God. This verse reveals to us the first step in doing so. Trusting God's desire to reward us, that is, give good things to us when we seek Him. In other words, believing that God's nature is to seek our good, which is the definition of goodness, is the starting point for drawing near to God. So, this verse from Hebrews 11 might explain why God's enemy, Satan, relentlessly tries to cause us to doubt God's goodness. Let's examine his strategy for a few moments. From Genesis chapter 3, the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice that Satan actually begins the temptation by planting a complete fabrication into Eve's mind. That is the possibility that this unfair God might have made all the wonderful fruit trees in the garden to tease Adam and Eve but not permit them to eat any of them. His words again, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? Even though God never said that, as Eve pointed out, Satan still planted the idea that this God was the kind of being who could have done something so completely unfair. Satan also undermined Eve's confidence in God's goodness by taking her focus off all the wonderful fruit God had given them to enjoy throughout the entire garden and placed her focus on one apparently unfair restriction. Every single other tree in the garden with its lush fruit for Adam and Eve to enjoy proved God's goodness, his desire to bless them with good gifts. 
Later, Jesus would remind us of this wonderful, benevolent nature of God. Jesus says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Satan's attack on God's goodness continues, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan insinuates that, number one, God's motive is selfishness. He is keeping something good from Eve and Adam. That is the knowledge of good and evil. And number two, God's moral law is fundamentally a restriction on her happiness. Both insinuations undermine her confidence in the goodness of God. The truth, of course, is that his law is given to us out of his goodness to guide us into blessing. When the moral law was given to Moses, Moses pled with the people to see that it was the path to life, not a sentence to misery. In Deuteronomy 28, for example, Moses urges, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And this is just part of the blessing from Deuteronomy 28. Satan also seeks to undermine confidence in God's goodness by convincing humans that fulfillment comes by throwing off restraint. He says to Eve, you will be like God. M. Scott Peck tells of counseling a woman named Charlene who said about Christianity, there's no room for me in that. That would be my death. I don't want to live for God. I will not. I want to live for my own sake. Charlene believed Christ would stifle her creativity and growth. But Jesus said, I have come that they, my followers, may have life and have it abundantly. And if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. True freedom comes from understanding and cooperating with God's purpose for us, just as an eagle is most free as it soars through the sky. Even Adam doubt the goodness of the God who restricted them from eating the fruit, ate, and by their sin brought all of the human pain ever experienced upon the human race. But Satan is not done with accusing God. He now blames God for the human suffering brought into the world by our race's sin. To be honest, it is hard to reconcile all of the suffering around us with faith in a good, all-powerful God. 
Christian apologist Lee Strobel writes, We read of horrible evils like the Holocaust, the killing fields of Cambodia, the genocide of Rwanda, the torture chambers of South America, and we can't help but wonder, where is God? We watch news coverage of earthquakes and hurricanes in which thousands perish, and we wonder, why didn't God stop it? We read the statistic that 1,000 million people in the world lack the basic necessities of life, and we wonder, why doesn't God care? We may suffer ourselves with persistent pain or aching loss or seemingly hopeless circumstances and wonder, why doesn't God help? If he is loving and if he is all-powerful and if he is good, then surely all of this suffering should not exist. What is worse is that it is often the innocent who are the victims. Agnostic-turned-Christian Sheldon Van Alken writes, If only villains got broken backs or cancers, if only cheaters and crooks got Parkinson's disease, we should see a sort of celestial justice in the universe. But as it is, a sweet-tempered child lies dying of a brain tumor. A happy wife sees her husband and child killed before her eyes by a drunken driver. And we soundlessly scream at the stars, why, why? A mention of God, of God's will, doesn't help a bit. How could a good God, a loving God, do that? How could he ever let that happen? It is vital for us to realize and to teach our kids that cries of agonizing pain like these just mentioned need to be answered not just with a logical attempt to defend God's goodness at some point, but with deep compassion and empathy over the loss first. We'll look at this important function in the last part of the episode. But for the sake of our children's faith, we must help them know that the suffering in this world is not a valid logical reason for disbelieving in God. So let's consider some practical ideas for building confidence that a good God exists. First, looking at the logical fallacy that is so common. Rabbi Harold Kushner is the author of the best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, written following the death of his son Aaron from a horrible premature aging disease called progeria. In trying to overcome his grief, Kushner posed this argument. If God is all-powerful, he could end suffering in the world. If God is all good, he would end suffering in the world. Suffering in the world exists, therefore either God is not all good or God is not all powerful. Kushner opted to throw away the omnipotence of God. God would like to help, but he isn't capable of solving all the problems of the world. Quote, even God has a hard time keeping things in check. This argument has been adopted by many in order to disprove the existence of the Christian God. But there are two logical fallacies in Kushner's argument. First, the assumption that an all-good God would have ended suffering by now. But what if the good God of the Bible has come into the world himself to take upon himself all the suffering in the world caused by human sin in order to set the universe free from all destruction and pain one day. That is completely logical. This is the second fallacy in the words of Tim Keller. 
If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same time a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. The very premise that is postulated that God is so wise and powerful that he knows how to stop all human suffering while preserving the freedom of uncoerced human choice, by the way, means God must also, with that power, be wise enough to have purposes for pain that we don't have the mental horsepower to comprehend. The coexistence of suffering with an all-powerful, all-loving God is not a logical contradiction, especially since the Bible explains the reason for suffering and God's plan to take that suffering on to vanquish it. So Kushner's logic just doesn't work. The second reason that suffering and pain do not disprove the goodness of God is a reality of human life that is well known by dentists, athletic coaches, physical therapists, surgeons, and educators, as well as many others. And that is this. Often pain is a good thing. The coach makes his athletes hurt now by running wind sprints until they are ready to drop, knowing that in the fourth quarter, being in superb shape will bring them the joy of winning close games. We are all familiar with the truth that in many spheres of life, no pain means no gain. Biblically understood, pain right now leads to joy in eternity. Paul wrote, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Here's the point that we need to gently help our kids understand. Arguing that for God to allow suffering proves that he's not good is really honestly arrogant. First, because we don't have the mental capacity to understand his purpose for suffering. And second, because even in our everyday human life, we can see how pain is often good. The third reason that suffering in this world does not disprove God's goodness is that we can't see the end of the story right now. Criticizing God for not eliminating suffering right now is like reading half a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot. We can't see it now. But the biblical view of our eternal life in Christ is that the depth of our joy in eternity is linked to the depth of our earthly suffering. Tim Keller says it well. The biblical view of things is resurrection, not a future that is just a consolation for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life you always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make that eventual glory and joy even greater. This week I've been reading the biography of Elizabeth Elliot, under whom I got to study. After falling in love with each other, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot waited five years to marry, putting their mission work ahead of marriage. They were finally married, and less than three years later, Jim was speared to death in an effort to reach out with the gospel to the Wadani tribe in Ecuador, also called the Alcas. Though she later remarried, I believe that the heart-wrenching grief of losing Jim will lead, when she is reunited to him for all eternity, to a deeper level of, I have to say, non-sexual 
yet passionate, heartfelt joy than she could have ever known had she not been separated from him in her earliest days of marriage. The restoration of her broken heart and their broken relationship will be more joyful than it would have been had it never been broken. Keller again restates this truth. Just after the climax of the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead, as he'd thought, but alive. He cries, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. This is the ultimate defeat of evil and suffering. It will not only be ended, but so radically vanquished that what has happened will only serve to make our future life and joy infinitely greater. As the spiritual leaders of our homes, we need to help our loved ones see that the suffering in this world supplies zero evidence for logically disbelieving in an all-powerful, all-loving God. We might be content to stop there, but there is a lesson in Jesus' suffering that Christians must not ignore as we respond to suffering in our world. Let's consider Jesus' cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the surface, this looks like Jesus is asking a question. He wants a cognitive explanation from God for why he had to go through the hell of being ripped from his eternal unity with the Father as he became sin for our sakes. But was Jesus actually looking for a solution to his mental questions? Didn't Jesus already know what God's plan for redeeming Adam's race was? Remember that these words are quoted by Jesus from Psalm 22. The book of Psalms was given to help us process the emotions of our lives with God. Through this lens, why have you forsaken me appears to be more of a cry of anguish to be heard than a question to be answered. Severe grief causes the intense feelings of being forsaken and provokes the horrible question that has no seeming answer, why? The emotional trauma of much suffering requires more than a logical explanation of it. The broken heart needs its anguish to be heard. As Christ followers, we do need to know how to reconcile human suffering with God's omnipotence and goodness, but we also need to hear the anguish of a broken heart. Guys are not very good with feelings, but we can do this by listening well. Henry Nouwen said, listening is a spiritual hospitality by which we invite strangers to be friends. Here's a sort of model dialogue between Jim, who is a believer, and Fred, who is not, just to give us guys an idea of how this process of listening well might work. Fred, no good God would allow all the suffering of this world. Jim, it sounds like you're pretty familiar with some of the pain that life dishes out. Fred, yes, I am. Jim, care to tell me about it? Fred, I grew up in a Bible-thumping church. When I was four, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. My pastor had preached a sermon about how God answers prayer, so I prayed and prayed that God would not let my mom die. But he did. Why would I believe in that kind of a God? 
Jim. I'm so sorry. You must have been devastated. Fred. My father was so absorbed with his own grief, he tried to drown it in a bottle, leaving me pretty much to take care of myself. Jim. Wow, what a tough way to grow up. You must have felt so lonely. Fred. I used to cry myself to sleep every night for years. I had such a great mom. Jim. I can't imagine that kind of pain to a young boy's heart. The ultimate answer to the human suffering of this world is Jesus. It's his compassion that we must exhibit to bring healing to the sufferer's heart. It is Jesus' restoration of earth to which we must point to a day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. As spiritual leaders committed to protecting the hearts and minds of our loved ones, we must realize that Hebrews 11.6 tells us that our loved one must believe in the goodness of God before he or she will draw near to God. No doubt this truth explains why Satan seeks constantly to create doubt in our minds about God's goodness. We saw that the common claim that suffering disproves the existence of an all-powerful, all-good God is completely false. To the contrary, God has a good purpose for suffering that, as finite beings, we can't always see. The fact that suffering does not disprove God's goodness is foundational, but presenting that truth cannot substitute for showing Christ's compassion to the suffering and pointing them to the day when all suffering will end. For further prayerful thought, number one, can you think of some recent times when the thought just jumped into your mind? I can't really trust God's goodness. Number two, why does logic not support the contention that human suffering proves there can't be an all-powerful, all-good God? Number three, how can you best explain to those under your care that non-believers probably need to experience our compassion for their pain more than our explanation of how to reconcile that pain with the goodness of God? This week's resource highlight is episode number 21, Christ's Compassion, Godly Men Need It and Demonstrate It, March 29th, 2020, which strengthens our confidence in God's love for us and our understanding of how to demonstrate compassion to others. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. For this podcast series surrounding our loved ones with the belt of truth, the blog version is designed for you to print to share with your wife or kids and include some extra links to resources used for the podcast. So the print version, again, is at forgingbonds.org backslash blog. Next week, we continue our series surrounding our loved ones with the belt of truth. We'll examine how to help our loved ones develop a confident response to the argument there can't be just one true religion. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ by inspiring them each week while they commute or work out.